Welcome to Bible News Press. Our goal is to discuss biblical faith beyond cliches and buzzwords, whether such words are religious or political. Sometimes we sit around the table and fellowship. Sometimes we do a little time travel. It is all part of our journey with our Abba Father, who has given us the key to life. We do it with Jesus, and we do it together. Welcome. Hello, I'm Laura. I will be reading Song of Solomon, Chapter 7, from the World English Bible. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, prince's daughter! Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a skillful workman. Your body is like a round goblet, no mixed wine is wanting. Your waist is like a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns that are twins of a row. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are like the pools in Heshbon by the gates of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head on you is like Carmel. The hair of your head like purple. The king is held captive in its tresses. How beautiful and how pleasant you are, love, for delights. This, your stature, is like a palm tree, your breasts like its fruit. I said, I will climb up into the palm tree, I will take hold of its fruit. Let your breasts be like clusters of the vine, the smell of your breath like apples. Your mouth is like the best wine that goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding through the lips of those who are asleep. I am my beloved's. His desire is toward me. Come, my beloved, let's go out into the field. Let's lodge in the villages. Let's go early up to the vineyards. Let's see whether the vine has budded, its blossom is open, and the pomegranates are in flower. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes produce fragrance. At our doors are all kinds of precious fruits, new and old, which I have stored up for you, my beloved. That is the end of chapter 7. This section, as it was apparently divided by those monks in the 13th century, begins with talking about beautiful feet of the prince's daughter. And of course, this reminded me of Isaiah 52, 7, where it says, how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news. And then Paul quotes that in, Ro- in Romans ten fifteen. But without the section break, this would simply be the next thing after talking about the dance in Mahineum. So this reference to the feet gives more of the suggestion that the bride is dancing. But there is disagreement here also about exactly who is speaking. Some say calling her the prince's daughter is more appropriately what the friends or the daughters of Jerusalem would say. But then the following description is too personal and intimate for anyone other than the lover bridegroom except for possibly verse 5, also being an interjection by the friends. Plus, we will find in chapter 8 that the bride's brothers or family speak of her breasts, though this is certainly not admiring them. And all of this emphasizes that this is still obviously at least a dramatic love poem depicting the devoted love and physical intimacy of one man and one woman. But there were many things that I wanted to look up. In order to share these things in the most uncluttered and interesting way, I just want to say now that, one, I did some word studies and cross-references by myself 
using the concordances and dictionaries and cross-references in my Bibles. And also, I read through the overview of the Song of Solomon by James Vernon McGee and read the commentaries by Matthew Henry, uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, I don't know if I got those orders right, and David Gusick fairly thoroughly, though I do not continue reading some sections when they're either very verbose or grandiose and seeming to go into conjecture that's too far removed from the text or cross-biblical comparison. So I may or may not specifically reference something from here on. But let me start with the outline of what various people think this book or song means, because it was helpful for me to do that again now. One, It is a love poem or song, no matter that it also has other layers of meaning. To attempt to completely allegorize it can make certain sections of it seem ridiculous and maybe even lessen the impact of the deeper layers. Just like marriage between one man and one woman is unique with every union, yet still represents the church and Christ, This poem is still an expression of love between a man and a woman and a portrait of the love of God for his own, his own being those who answer the invitation that he woos all people with. Two, this has been part of the Old Testament canon always. As such, even the Jews who sought God in his word have recognized this as both a vivid depiction of proper love and desire between a man and a woman in marriage, and an illustration of God as a husband of his people, which they understood to be themselves for obvious reasons, whether or not this was only the faithful, those who are righteous through faith, Jews, who understood this is another discussion. And three, while those with faith in Jesus Christ are Christ's bride, his church. Each of us are still individuals in his sight, which is evident throughout scripture and in the individual choice we each have in responding to the gospel. Because of this, even though on one hand we are altogether the church, we are also individually loved. So getting into the song at chapter 7, verse 1, there is an interesting cross-reference to Psalm 45. This psalm is called a contemplation by the sons of Korah, a wedding song. I don't want to delve into who the sons of Korah were right now, but this psalm is similar to the Song of Solomon, though it was probably written for King David. The reason it was linked in particular here in chapter 7, verse 1 of Song of Songs is because Psalm 4513 also refers to a princess. Going through the imagery with deeper examination, you can find things like, in verse 1, when it talks about rounded thighs like jewelry, it might be referring to the curve of a necklace as it hangs. And then also, the speaking of a skillful craftsman reminded me, well, first of all, Genesis 126, where God made man, and then Psalm 139, where it talks about God knowing us in the womb. In verse 2, There was one claim that this was describing clothing, but that seems very out of place with the rest of the description. Rather, it seems her beauty is like spiced, very flavorful wine. Then with the part about the wheat, I had to laugh because no Western woman I know would ever want her waist compared to a heap of anything, 
unless you're picturing those old-fashioned ways of tying bundles of wheat that narrow it in the center. It kind of goes to show how cultural these descriptions are. Lilies have been prominent throughout the Song of Solomon. I went back to make a list, and then every time I went back through looking at something else, I found another mention of a lily. So you might find more, but here's what I found. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, she compares herself to the lily. In chapter 2, 16, he is browsing among the lilies. In chapter 4, verse 5, we have sheep browsing among the lilies. And in chapter 6, 3, we have fawns browsing among the lilies. In chapter 6, verse 2, he is gathering lilies. But then go back a little bit to chapter 5, 13, his lips are lilies. And then, so now we have lilies set about her in chapter 7, verse 2. Of course, many things are repeated, built upon, and developed in this song, including wine and spices and fruits. Verse 3 is a consistent description of her breasts, except when used by her family, as we'll see later, and in her response, apparently, to her family. It is interesting that while this description here overall is by far the most intimate, describing her whole body more erotically, her breasts were first mentioned by herself in chapter 1, verse 13, and then by him after the wedding day is talked about in chapter 4, verse 5. His descriptions of her beauty get increasingly intimate. She only describes his physical attributes once and never as personal. This gives the definite impression that the poem, the song, is for the bride, for her to understand how much she is loved and thought beautiful, and her response to that. In verse 4, the neck is a tower like it was in chapter 4, verse 4, where it was an armory, but here it is ivory, which is a precious, beautiful thing, but also strong in its own right, as we know, because tusks are the source of it. Describing eyes as pools seems a little bit more like cross-cultural imagery we, we can relate to. The eyes show the depth of the soul, and water reflects colors and gets patterns created in it by the breezes, though at least two commentaries emphasize that these were known as fish pools, which is how the King James Version translates it, and it's hard in my mind to associate fish pools with anything beautiful. But these very specific pools were apparently known, and so there was no mistaking her eyes for just any muddy pond. But this is also a departure from talking about eyes like doves. Multiple sources translate Bath Rabim as daughter of a multitude, so her eyes are in the midst of a multitude, or is it just a very clear description of a location? There can sometimes be a tendency for people to over-spiritualize every word in the Bible when they're being used in everyday ways, but in a song, I would expect each word to have expressive meaning. The description of the nose could mean it is straight, not flawed. Also, Damascus was conquered by King David, as recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 3-12, through 12, and was briefly under Solomon's rule, although we hear in 1 Kings eleven twenty three through 24 about the guy who rebelled and then began to reign in Damascus. 
Interestingly, Damascus is credited as being one of the oldest cities in the world and the oldest, most continuously populated city in the world. It was on a trade route that became known as the King's Highway that linked Egypt to the nations of Mesopotamia. In verse 5, we have the reference to Carmel, which was known as a beautiful mountain. It is where David came across Abigail, and it is famously the site of Elijah's showdown with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. 2 Kings 4.25 says Elisha hung out there. Isaiah speaks of Carmel's excellency in chapter 35, verse 2 of Isaiah. And Carmel is used a lot in prophecy as a description. Um, It apparently means garden land in Hebrew. When you add the description of her head as purple, being a royal color, this makes this description of her head very special. So jewels, wine, uh, very basic food like wheat, flowers, fawns, ivory towers, beautiful water, a garden. And then in verse 6, he sums it all up. She is delightful. But he doesn't stop there because he goes on about her overall height and or bearing. And then the breasts again and again and apples and wine. Verse 9 says, through the lips of those who are asleep. Now, Young's literal translation of the Bible says, strengthening the lips of the aged. So you could say her love is very potent. Or is it his love that's potent? Because the New King James Version divides this verse in half and has him saying, the roof of your mouth is like wine, and having her say, the wine goes down smoothly. Um, The Christian Standard Bible leaves off anything about sleeping or aging. And then the King James Version says, the roof of thy mouth, like the best wine for my beloved, that goes down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. Some say it is all the bride speaking, but there does appear to be a conjunction between verses 8 and 9. So it's all a little confusing there if you listen to the different commentaries. Anyway, their love is clearly wonderful. And then you could reference that turning water into wine was Jesus's first public miracle and at a wedding. In verse 10, she returns to the theme that she is her beloved's, only seeming to have come to a new realization of how much he desires her. So she says, let's go. In verse 12, the vineyards, which are first mentioned in chapter 1, verse 6, that she hadn't kept, and then in chapter 1, verse 14, describing the bridegroom, And then in chapter 2, verse 13, the vines that are in blossom, and in chapter 2, verse 15, the vineyards that the foxes are plundering, and now here. And this doesn't even include where a garden is mentioned. And we'll hear more about vineyards in the final section. Then there is pomegranates. Pomegranates caught my eye because I remember they are prominent in decorating both the tabernacle that Moses Put together and the temple that Solomon built. References to this are Exodus chapters 28 and 39, Numbers chapters 13 and 20, 1 Kings 7 and 2 Chronicles 3 and 4, and then Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 8, pomegranates are used to describe the beautiful land of promise. And then sadly, in 2 Kings 25 and Jeremiah 52, 
We also get a very detailed description of the temple, including the pomegranates as decoration when it is destroyed. And then there are pomegranates here. When I did a word search, these are the only places pomegranates are mentioned, and I looked through several versions of the Bible. So that is definitely one thing that substantiates the idea that this is about our relationship with God. Here in the Song of Solomon, it has to do with describing love in flower, ready to produce fruit. And from there we go to mandrakes. If you recall the tension between Jacob's two wives, the two sisters, Rachel and Leah, maybe you recall the story of Rachel selling Leah a night with Jacob in order to get a hold of Leah's mandrakes. And they say the Bible is all about patriarchy. But these are the only two places in the Bible talking about mandrakes. According to both the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia and Smith's Bible Dictionary, mandrakes have been known as an aphrodisiac and been associated with fertility from ancient times. So this here in the Song of Solomon is a hint of desiring children, which is a major part of why God designed marriage. Then the bride gives in to saying, oh, just all the precious fruits, describing them as new and old. This seems to be a reference to newly harvested versus stored, so not old as in past their prime or undesirable in any way. And you can also see it used the same way when Jesus is speaking in Matthew 13, 52. Here he has just gotten done explaining some parables to the disciples, and they said they understand now, and he said to them, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out his treasure things new and old. That's kind of how I feel about this song of songs. It is a treasure full of things new and old. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. That is the Bible News Press segment for today, but not the end of our journey.